Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number six, Leviticus chapter four. Okay, let's review a little bit. So far, we've looked at three different kinds of sacrifices. All of them called offerings. Alright, and we've talked about the Olah, the burnt offering, the Mincha, the grain offering, and the Seva, the peace offering. And each of them had different purposes and occasions for their use. And all of them had in common that the offering, whether it was an animal or grain, had to be burnt up on the brazen altar. But it's also key to understand that none of these offerings so far have dealt with the commissions of sins. None have dealt with atonement for direct trespasses against God per se. Rather, they are dealing with several aspects of mankind's corrupt nature before God. That is, if a man were able never to break even one of God's laws, that man could never escape the fact that the absence of poor behavior did not change his nature. And it's his nature which is the determining factor for his acceptability to God. Our acceptability to Yehovah was not and still is not based so much on our behavior as our nature. And, And man's nature, as always, was predetermined. Since Adam and Eve, all men's natures are evil in God's eyes. Period. And God can't accept a sinful nature as is any more than he can accept sinful actions without there being consequences within his justice system. However, God did provide a legal means for man to make atonement for his naturally evil nature. Now, when I say legal... I mean it in the context that it was done in accordance with his laws, with God's regulations. These these things he issued as part of his legal system, his mishpat. And the olah was first among these remedies, the olah sacrifice. The olah first got God's attention and then it provided a means for God to view the worshiper favorably. That is... The worshiper became acceptable to God by means of the Allah. The Hebrew sense of the word is that the worshiper is allowed to come near to the Lord, to approach the Lord. As a matter of fact, some of the more modern translations will even translate this as the near offering. Okay. The minka built upon what has was established by the Olah. After the Olah made the worshiper approachable and acceptable to God, no one approach God, can approach God, can they, until he's first acceptable to God, then the worshiper may now offer a gift to God. This gift was actually more in the nature of tribute. It's a required gift. Okay, it's a ransom. And by doing what is required, the worshiper, by paying this ransom, this prescribed price, thereby expresses his dedication to Jehovah and his desire to be obedient. Now, the peace offering, the Sebah, next built upon the work of the Olah and the Mincha. The peace offering established a fellowship, Shalom between the worshiper and God Almighty that could not occur until 
God found the worshiper acceptable to him, and B, tribute, ransom, was paid. So together these three offerings, the Olah, the Minchan, the Seba, established and maintained peace and fellowship with Yehovah despite man's inherent evil nature. Now let's take a look at the pattern and principles that are emerging here. Because much into the future, a transformation is going to occur. And it's going to occur within the sacrificial system. And Yeshua is going to become the fulfilled type that's being represented here in Leviticus. Now we find that there is a prescribed way that we are to deal with a holy God. And there is a prescribed sequence by which we must approach Yehovah and that sin is present in a number of ways within individuals and groups and that sin is present not only in our behavior but in the very fiber of our being. Okay. And by the way, nobody gets a mulligan. Nobody can approach God using a different method or a different sequence. And nobody is exempt from their natural born condition of wickedness, nor from responsibility for the requirement to obey God's laws and regulations. What we find when reading the New Testament and the passages about the life and work of Christ and the work he did on our behalf is that the first thing that his death and resurrection did for those who put their trust and faith in him is that it made us believers acceptable to God. Step one. It starts there. Okay? And God has no interest in our gifts to him if we're not first acceptable to him. Okay? And if we are acceptable, or rather if we're not acceptable, then our gifts our attempt of giving him ransom are simply not acceptable. And if we're not acceptable to him, then there can be no peace between God and us. Again, notice that the issue about the acceptability of men to Jehovah by means of Jesus Christ is not about sinful actions and behaviors. It's about our sinful natures. St. Paul often used the expression, the power of sin, when he was referring to our problem of having this corrupt nature. And I think sometimes we get what Paul said a little bit confused and out of kilter. Because we tend to think that the expression, the power of sin, is referring to power like in the term electrical power or horsepower or a powerful man. Rather, I see this more in the sense of the spiritual as in principalities and powers. The spiritual power of sin. Okay? Or the powers of the underworld and the evil. That is, Paul is referring to that unseen, controlling entity, an evil domain, that spiritually dark nature that lives within us all until it is replaced with a holy and clean spirit. So when Paul says the power of sin, it is in reference to man's naturally sinful Condition that influences every aspect of our lives. You see, just as with the sacrifices ordained in Leviticus, there is much that has to happen before God is even interested in dealing with our sinful behavior. First, our nature has to be dealt with. Then our behavior can be addressed. This is the God-ordained order of things. As believers, we don't become acceptable to God because we stop trespassing against Him. 
God doesn't clean us up a bit first and then we reach some level of behavior that's, I don't know, good enough. And God says, bingo, now that makes you acceptable to me. No, rather, Christ is as the Olah, the burnt offering. The sacrifice that allows us to come near God. Yeshua's death and his having been our sacrifice makes you and me acceptable to the Father just as we are. If we'll appropriate what Jesus did simply by believing it and trusting him, we'll be acceptable. Only after we've become acceptable to God, Baptists call it being saved, other evangelicals call it being born again, does God begin to deal with our trespasses against him? First, though, our natures have to be made acceptable to the Father. And this is accomplished by the sacrifice of Christ and then that simultaneous exchange of natures within us. The instant we accept our Messiah, our old nature is exchanged for a new, clean, holy one. And this is in the form of the Holy Spirit that comes to indwell us. And I'm I'm sure many of you are saying, so what about Christ paying for our sins, sins, plural? Our trespasses, our bad behaviors. Oh yeah, he does that too. But in a very real way, the required first step is that he pays a price. To give us the ability to even approach the Father. Now, I don't want to leave the impression as though I'm describing some three-step program to peace with God. Okay, That's not how it works. In the physical, you know, we do things in a serial fashion. One step after the other. The Levitical sacrificial system worked that way. There were physical altars. There were physical sacrifices. So there was this sequential order of ritual and each ritual dealt with a particular aspect of the process and the process could neither be interrupted nor changed God was breaking his plan down showing it to us in bits and pieces in a simplistic way that we could grasp he was showing us the principles the pattern he was showing us the many facets of sin, atonement, forgiveness. And in this, he was showing us his holiness and his justice system. Now, after dealing with our sinful natures in the first three chapters of Leviticus, now, in chapter 4, Jehovah is going to begin to deal with our sinful behaviors. Turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 4. Leviticus chapter 4. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, if anyone sins inadvertently against any of the mitzvot, the commands of Adonai, concerning things which should not be done, if he does any one of them then, it is the anointed Kohen priest who sinned, and thus brought guilt on the people, he is to offer Adonai a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He must bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before Adonai, lay his hand on the bull's head, and slaughter the bull in the presence of Adonai. The anointed Cohen is to take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tent of meeting. The Kohen is to dip his finger in the blood, sprinkle some of the blood seven times in the presence of Adonai, excuse me, in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. The Kohen is to put some of the blood on the horns of the altar for fragrant incense before Adonai there in the tent of meeting, and all the remaining blood of the bull is to be poured out at the base of the altar for burnt offerings, which is at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. He's to remove from the bull for the sin offering all of its fat, the fat covering the inner organs, all the fat above the um, 
two kidneys, the fat on them near the flanks and the covering of the liver, which you will remove from with the kidneys, as it is removed from an ox sacrificed for a peace offering. And the priest is to make these parts go up in smoke on the altar for burnt offerings. But the bull's hide, all of its flesh, with its head, the lower parts of its legs, the inner organs and dung. In other words, the entire bull he's to bring outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are emptied out. There he's to burn it on wood with fire and there where the ashes are emptied out it's to be burned up. Now if the entire community of Israel inadvertently makes a mistake with the assembly being unaware of the matter and they do something against any of the commands of Adonai concerning things which should not be done they're guilty. When the sin they have committed becomes known, then the assembly is to offer a young bull as a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting. The leaders of the community are to lay their hands on the bull's head, slaughter the bull in the presence of Adonai. The anointed priest is to bring some of the bull's blood to the tent of meeting. The priest is to dip his finger in the blood, sprinkle it seven times in the presence of Adonai in front of the curtain. Now he used to put some of the blood on the horns of the altar before Adonai there in the tent of meeting. And all of the remaining blood he used to pour out at the base of the altar for burnt offerings, which is at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. And he used to remove all of its fat and make it go up in smoke on the altar. That is what he is to do with the bull. He must do the same with this bull as he does with the one for the sin offering. Thus the Kohen will make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. He's to bring the bull outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It's the sin offering for the assembly. Now, when a leader sins and inadvertently does something against any of the commands of Adonai concerning things which should not be done, he is guilty. If the sin which he committed becomes known to him, he's to bring is to bring as his offering a male goat without defect. Lay his hand on the goat's head and slaughter it in the place where they slaughter the burnt offering in the presence of Adonai. It is a sin offering. The Kohen is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar for burnt offerings. Its remaining blood is to pour out at the base of the altar for burnt offerings. And all its fat is, is to make go up and smoke on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice for peace offerings. Thus, the priest will make atonement for him in regard to his sin and he will be forgiven. If an individual among the people commits a sin inadvertently, doing something against any of the mitzvot of Adonai concerning these things which should not be done, he is guilty. If the sin he committed becomes known to him, he's to bring as his offering a female goat without defect for the sin he committed. He's to lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, slaughter the sin offering in the place of burnt offerings. The Kohen is to take some of its blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar for burnt offerings, and all its remaining blood he's to pour out at the base of the altar. All its fat he's to remove as the fat is removed from the sacrifice for peace offerings, and the Kohen is to make it go up in smoke on the altar as a fragrant aroma for Adonai. Thus, the priest will make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he's to bring a female without defect. Lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it as a sin offering in the place where they slaughter burnt offerings. The priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar for burnt offerings, and all of its remaining blood is to pour out of the base of the altar. All its fat is to be removed, and as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice for peace offerings, and the priest is to make it go up in smoke on the altar on top of the offerings for Adonai made by fire. Thus the Kohen will make atonement for him in regard to the sin he's committed and he will be forgiven. Now, although we're not going to get into chapter 5 today, actually we probably won't even finish chapter 4 we need to know the chapters 4 and 5 of Leviticus are tied together. And that together they define yet another type of sacrifice. And scholars who just love big words 
called the two sacrifices of Leviticus 4 and 5 when taken together as a particular class or type of sacrifice, they call it expiatory. That is, they're designed to atone for acts of sin. In fact, the usual title for the sacrificial the type of sacrificial offering of chapter 4 and then as we go into chapter 5 is called in most of our versions the sin offering. We're not going to use that title for this particular sacrifice because it really does a disservice to what it's intended to do. In Hebrew The sacrifice of Leviticus chapter 4 is called the Hat'at. Okay? And it carries with it the sense of being a sacrifice for the purpose of purifying the sinner in order to relieve him of his guilt before Jehovah because this human has committed a transgression against God. In other words... It's not the action that's being addressed. It's the polluted condition of the worshiper that's resulted because of his act of transgression that's being dealt with. You see that little nuance there? It's not what you did. It's your condition now that you've done it. It's assumed that the worshiper had been in a ritually clean or pure state. That he was unpolluted by the guilt of sins, but now he's done something that was against God's holiness. So, something had to be done about it. Now, since he's committed this offense, he was no longer pure before God. Therefore, he had to be purified. So, in Torah class... We're going to call this particular sacrifice that in Hebrew is hata'at the purification offering. Now, just so you don't think that I'm just redefining words and kind of rolling my own new theology up here, understand that the typical English translation of sin offering, that's when we're transferring, when we translate the Hebrew term hata'at, is not a direct translation of that word. Rather, it's called a functional translation. That is, there is no such thing as a translation for the word hadat. Hadat has no equivalent word in any other language. Okay? Rather, all that can be done with it is to restate the purpose of the hadat. It, its function. Okay? And we do that in whatever language we're translating to. Since Hat'at is not technically an offering to atone for the unacceptable behavior itself that's been committed, calling it a sin offering kind of gives us the wrong impression of its purpose. From a functional aspect, the Hat'at repairs, follow me, repairs the condition of the worshiper who has committed that sin. It purifies the worshiper. Therefore, a better translation of the function of the Hatat is that it's a purification offering. Now, verse 1 starts out by making it clear that what was about to precede all these words that follow after verse 1 is still, of course, Jehovah's command to Moses. This wasn't a proclamation by people in authority that was going on here. And verse 2 tells us that the Hata'at is concerned with purifying the worshiper from what? Unintentional, inadvertent sins. And we're going to discuss this unintentional aspect, which in chapter 4 leans more towards the idea of the sin being inadvertent, accidental. A little more when we get into chapter 5. Now, I talked a few minutes ago about the principles and the pattern that were being established in the first three sacrifices of Leviticus and how these were going to carry over to the rest of Scripture even on into Christ's ministry and purpose. 
The Hatat, the fourth sacrifice, brings another aspect to the nature of sin and its effects and the, the assault on God's holiness that it causes. And what we're doing when we study Leviticus is what I call walking around the rock. For those of you that have been graced with that little bit of folk wisdom before, let me explain to you. If you encounter a very large rock, if you were to stop and take notes at, to exactly what it looked like, its coloration, its surface, its feel, whether it had sharp edges, whether it was curved, what you wrote down would depend on where you were standing at any given moment. As you moved around that rock and looked at it from a different position, its appearance would change. To get a proper and full understanding of all of the physical aspects of this rock, you've got to walk all the way around it. View it from many positions and angles. And this is because the rock is a somewhat random shape. If you decide to stand only at one spot and describe the rock from only one angle, you're going to get a very distorted and incomplete view of the overall picture and nature of that rock. Even though, from the precise point you're standing, you're certainly accurate in reporting what you're observing. Discussing sin and atonement is like that. In our soundbite age, we tend to think we can reduce almost every scriptural principle to a handful of Christian cliches and clever sayings. And these sayings may not be wrong, but often they're so simplistic as to be pretty much useless. So Leviticus takes us the long way around that rock of sin and atonement. And it's going to stop and it's going to have us examine its many facets at a number of places. And we're going to find that sin is a very complex issue and that perhaps it's even more serious and present in more forms in our lives than we've ever given thought to. You see, the main problem with sin and why it's talked about so much in the Torah as well as the New Testament is that it can destroy the relationship between man and God. Sin represents the greatest danger to the covenant relationship that God created in order for man to live in peace and shalom with him. And sin brings with it consequences that were often unintended, unforeseen, sometimes have no resolution, by the way. One of the most catastrophic consequences for man is that sin can precipitate God's wrath. Now, I will tell you bluntly, that I have encountered many Christians who have said something to the effect of, well, I don't believe in God's wrath. Or more often, I don't want to hear about God's wrath. I just want to hear about His love. If you don't believe God pours out His wrath and judgment or that He's not a God of love and judgment, then I fear for you. Because you don't understand the serious nature of sin and its consequences. By the time we're through with Leviticus, you're going to see just how seriously God takes sin. And it's not a pretty picture. Now, this fourth class of sacrifice in Leviticus, the Hatat, deals then with the precarious state of the person who has sinned. It's as though the person who has sinned has been poisoned with such a powerful toxin that he's very liable not to survive. The Hatat, the purification offering, is the antidote to neutralize that poison. You know, how the person got poisoned, the precise nature of the toxin, is secondary. Provided it occurred unintentionally. What's important in the Hatat is bringing that person back to good health 
Removing the debilitating effects of the poison of sin on that person. Bringing that person back into a condition of good spiritual health so that his relationship with God isn't destroyed. Does this make sense to you? You following this idea? Okay. The hot dog sacrifice is the Lord God Almighty on a rescue mission to rescue the person from his dangerous condition that can be spiritually fatal. And we find that the matter of sin is serious enough that depending on who comes into this sinful state due to his trespasses and what the trespasser's position is within the community of Israel, there are actually different ritual procedures to prescribe. The high priest has one procedure if he sins, a tribal leader another, a common member of the population of Israel, another, and then if the nation as a whole transgresses against Jehovah, there's yet a different antidote. Okay. Now let's briefly look at each of the levels of Israeli society named in chapter 4 and discuss the various purification procedures that were appropriate for each of these levels. Now the order of importance of position and status within the Hebrew society is established in this chapter. It's high priest, then all Israel, the whole congregation, then a tribal leader, and finally a common person. Okay. And the high priest, as the most important among these, was therefore addressed first. Now some Bible versions will, in verse 3, um, use the term, like, like it's used in the complete Jewish Bible, the anointed priest. Okay. And this is referring to the high priest because the high priest is the only priest that was anointed with the oil of unction. Okay. Since the high priest is the mediator between God and man, his sinning is a terrible thing. And it puts not only himself in danger, but the entire nation as well. When the high priest trespasses against God, the principle established here is that it has the effect of polluting all of Israel. Now let's be clear that in the context of Leviticus 4 these sins of the high priest were not necessarily personal sins of bad behavior. Generally they were errors made, out in, uh, made rather in the carrying out of his duties as a high priest. There were other sacrifices that dealt with his personal sins. Okay. Since the duties of the high priest were primarily the carrying out of the various rituals ordained by God that were on behalf of the people of Israel, when the high priest goofed up, he goofed up on behalf of the people. And so, they bore as much guilt as he did when he goofed up. And as a result, the priest had to use the sacrificial animal that was at the top of the sacrificial Hierarchy, a mature bull. Right? And while the Olah, the bird offering, that the selection of the animal that would be used for the sacrificial offering would vary from a bull all the way down to a bird, it had nothing to do with the extent of a person's sinful nature. It had to do with what a person could reasonably afford, a bull being the most expensive and extravagant, a bird being the least. Here in the Hata'at, though, it's somewhat different. In the purification offering, the higher the position in Israeli society, the more influence that person, that sinning person had, the more expensive and larger the animal had to be. Therefore, the high priest was responsible to use the largest and most expensive animal offering, a three-year-old bull. Now, just as in the bird offering, the animal had to be brought into the tabernacle courtyard, and there the worshiper, in this case we're talking about the high priest, performs semecha, that is, the laying on of hands, all right, unto the animal. And remember, this laying on of hands usually carried with it the idea of transferring guilt from the worshiper to the animal. But it also often carried with it the notion of officially designating that particular animal as this particular worshiper's sacrificial offering. So then the high priest killed the animal, 
collected its blood in a ritual vessel. And the blood was taken into the sanctuary, into the tent of meeting. And then the high priest would dip his finger into that bull's blood and he would sprinkle it seven times onto the parochet. The parochet. The curtain or veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the most holy chamber, from the holy place, the front chamber. Now let me be clear. The high priest was not standing in the Holy of Holies when he did this. He was standing in the holy place. Right? And he sprinkled the blood towards the Holy of Holies. He sprinkled it onto the veil, the parochet. Okay. Now this particular blood ritual was unusual. Okay. The only time, only other time it actually occurred was on Yom Kippur the Day of Atonement. But on Yom Kippur, the high priest actually entered into the Holy of Holies. After this, the high priest would dab a little blood onto the horns of the altar of incense. These protuberances here called horns. The altar of incense stood next to the um, parochet, to the veil. The remaining blood was then taken outside and poured at the foot of the brazen altar. Next, the bull was cut up. The fat was removed from certain of its inner organs and it was that that was burned up in the brazen altar. And only that. Okay. It is here in verse 12 <coughs> excuse me, that we get a fairly radical departure from typical sacrificial ritual. All that remains of the bull, first of all, isn't eaten. It's not given to the priest to use as food. And it's also not even burned up on the brazen altar. Rather, we're told, it's taken to a place designated as something called outside the camp. And there it's burned up on a common wood fire and the ashes are placed on a special ash heap that was located outside the camp. Now, if we're not careful, some important details can escape us due to the problems of translating the original Hebrew to Greek, Greek to Latin, Latin to English, which is the way most of our Bibles have come about. And in verse 10, we're told that certain parts of the bull, mainly the fat, are burned up on the brazen altar. And the Hebrew word used for burned up is katar. Katar is a word that indicates the act of burning that turns a sacrificial offering into smoke. A kind of a smoke that pleases God. It's also a word used when referring to the burning of incense on the altar of incense in the holy place. The idea is that this kind of burning up process is a positive thing. It is a holy procedure. It's a good thing. But in verse 12, where the remains of the bull are carried to a place outside of the camp and burned up on a common wood fire, the Hebrew word used for burned up is a different word. And the term carries with it a nearly opposite meaning of the word used in verse 10 for burning up. The word to describe the burning up in this instance is saroth. And saroth means to destroy by fire. To destroy something by burning it. The idea is you're getting rid of something that's undesirable. <coughs> saroth could be used to describe the burning of trash, for instance. So, Qatar deals with holy burning, Saraf with destruction by burning. Qatar is constructive, Saraf is destructive. Okay. What is burnt up on the brazen altar is holy and constructive. What is burnt up outside the camp on a common wood fire is corrupt and destructive. <clears throat> and if the word Saraf 
sounds a little bit familiar to your ears, it should. Because it's the root word of that creature that was hoisted up on the pole by Moses out in the wilderness. A seraph. Right? And it is usually called a fiery dragon or a fiery serpent or something like that. But fiery as in burning. We'll also find that a seraph is described in the Bible as being in service to God. But notice that the root word for seraph and seraph all revolves around destruction. Okay? And that is probably the key to understanding one of the purposes of that powerful spirit being that the Bible calls a seraphim. Okay, which is really just seraph plural. Seraphim. Which guards God's throne room. The seraphim's job is to visit absolute destruction upon all who would dare to come before the Lord God who are not clean and pure. Because it would endanger his holiness. Now let me also state that we're going to run across an offshoot of this burning up of a bull outside of the camp. And we find it in the sacrifice of the red heifer. Now most people have heard that. Particularly in our age. The red heifer. And some even know that the Jews are right now on the lookout for a perfect red heifer because it's going to be needed upon the building of the new temple in in Jerusalem. Now, I won't go into all that right now, but notice that the primary difference between the Hata'at we've been studying and the red heifer sacrifice is that the high priest has to use a male a bull for the purification offering, while the offer of the red heifer, as you can tell by the name, involves the sacrificing of a female cow, a heifer. Okay. Now in both cases, though, the burning up of that animal's remains must be outside the camp. So it is the seraph kind of burning, destructive burning. So actually, what does this mean? What's the significance of this outside the camp statement? Actually, it's quite literal. God instructed Moses that the Israelites were to encamp all around the wilderness tabernacle. The wilderness tabernacle in the center. And this area of encampment, everywhere they camped around this tabernacle, was considered clean. That is, clean as in pure, not clean as in hygienic, although hygiene is a part of Purity. Now, <clears throat> exactly where the outermost boundary of the camp existed in the era of Moses and the tabernacle, we're not told. But it had to be somewhere beyond where the tents of the twelve tribes were erected. Hundreds of years later, when the portable tent that was called the Wilderness Tabernacle gave way to a permanent wooden stone building called the temple, an actual measurement was established to determine what lay inside and therefore what was outside the camp. The measurement was always circular. And the center of the circle was the Holy of Holies. So in the time of Jesus... The area of the camp of Israel was set at a radius of 2,000 cubits around the Holy of Holies inside the temple. About 3,000 feet, roughly. Now, so we have this imaginary circle, if you would, drawn around the Holy of Holies. Everything inside that circle is what is described as inside the camp. Therefore, whatever is beyond it is outside the camp. Now, I just what I just told you is well documented in the Mishnah. And the only disputable part of it is the exact definition of a cubit, right, which varied actually from culture to culture. A cubit wasn't a strictly Hebrew measuring 
length. Okay? But generally it was around 18 inches. Now, what is very interesting to me is a comment made by the writer of Hebrews, which is generally presumed to be St. Paul, but that's not certain, okay, that concerns the precise location where Christ was crucified. So let's kind of put to work what we've learned here in Leviticus. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. We're just going to read a couple of three verses. Hebrews 13, I'm going to read verses 10 through 13. We have an altar from which those who serve in the tent, tabernacle, are not permitted to eat. For the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, brings the blood of animals into the holiest place as a sin offering, but their bodies are burned outside the camp. So too, Yeshua suffered death outside the gate in order to make the people holy through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him who was outside the camp and share his disgrace. Hmm. Notice that Paul, or whoever the writer of Hebrews is, makes an analogy. He says that just as the high priest brings an offering of blood to the sanctuary as a sin offering, the offering we've just been studying in Leviticus 4, the, the, the one I call the purification offering. But the body of the bull is burned outside the camp, so too Jesus was destroyed outside the gate and outside the camp, and therefore it's out there that we have to join him. Now some Bibles, including the complete Jewish Bible, say in verse 12, outside the gate, the gate probably being referred to would have been the uh, eastern gate. And in Jesus' day, there was a double-decker bridge <coughs> that began just outside the east, eastern gate. It spanned the valley below right, and went up to the Mount of Olives. Right? And it was over this bridge that the red heifer and the scapegoat was taken for the associated rituals and over which the bull, the remains of the bull for the purification offering was transported and destroyed. Now, you see, while thus far in our study of Torah, we've identified two altars used as part of the overall sacrificial system, the golden incense altar where they burned incense that was in, actually inside the temple, inside the, the holy place, and the brazen altar which was just outside the door to the temple because that's where they burned up all those animals, there was actually a third altar okay, named the Mifkad altar. Okay, the Mifkad altar was located somewhere near the summit of the Mount of Olives, just outside the boundaries of the camp of Israel. And it was there that the red heifer was burned up, that the bull remains were turned to ashes, and therefore, according to the writer of Hebrews, it was probably somewhere near there that Christ was crucified. Hebrews 13.13 13 says that Christ met his end outside the camp. Here's the point. And there are a couple of points. First, Christ probably was crucified on the Mount of Olives because the camp of Israel ended partway up the slope of the Mount of Olives, therefore was outside the camp. And we're told in the Gospels that those who viewed Christ's death Upon experiencing that earthquake at the moment that he gave up his spirit, turned and looked and saw the veil in the temple rent or tear from top to bottom. Well, since that veil faced 
eastward towards the Mount of Olives. And take a look at this. Take a look at this structure. Here we are, if you would, kind of from a, 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 a southwestern aspect. Anywhere here, I don't care if we were up at 30,000 feet, you could never see that veil. It would be impossible. You'd have to be up here somewhere to look down on As a matter of fact, that's exactly why they built the altar where it was because when the high priest did, those, did the red heifer sacrifice, he had to see the veil because he had to sprinkle blood from here towards the veil and towards where the Ark of the Covenant sat. Okay. Virtually anywhere else, it would have been totally out of view. Okay. The second point is that there is great significance in Jesus dying outside the camp. Because it tells us that Christ's death was most akin to the purification offering for the high priest. And we're told several times that Christ is our high priest. Okay. This procedure of the sacrifice being destroyed outside the camp was only used when the high priest became corrupted by sin. This didn't apply to tribal leaders or the common man. And this particular sacrifice had to be destroyed. What did Jesus say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father for a moment moved away from his son. And God's wrath, which is absolute annihilation, complete destruction, fell upon Christ for him to bear instead of us. Now, I'm not at all dogmatic, believe me, about the location of Jesus' death. The writer of Hebrews gives us clues, not absolute evidence. Okay. But this demonstrates just how important it is for us to study and understand the Torah and the Levitical sacrificial system. Okay. To say simply that Christ was the sacrifice for us is true, but what kind? There were many. Which of the many kinds was he? When Hebrew, when Hebrew says that, 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 that Christ was offered up as a sin offering, it's what it says in Hebrews as a, what I call a purification offering, that is a particular kind of sacrifice. A hata'at. And a hata'at has a very specific purpose. It's not a general or universal kind of sacrifice. There isn't anything like that that existed. Okay. Remember that those who originally wrote the New Testament and the account of Christ's death were Jews. They well understood the intricacies of the sacrificial system because it was common knowledge for them. So did Paul or the writer of Hebrews just throw in a piece of information about Jesus dying outside the camp because it was dramatic? Or he didn't give much thought as to what it meant? No. This piece of information was quite meaningful to any Jew who read this. Anyway, I don't want to give the impression that the Hatat, the purification offering, was the only element of the sacrificial system that Yeshua fulfilled. But certainly, the purification offering was front and center in the book of Hebrews. And we ought to take notice of that. And we'll finish up chapter 4 next week.